This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, as you know by now, I'm a huge fan of mangroves, and I see a lot more interest in them in recent years. It's particularly noticeable on social media. Like there is like so many hobby areas that are, you know, relatively new or unknown to the majority of hobbyists. There's a mixture of good, bad, and outright awful information propagating out there about mangroves and mangrove care. Now, look, I'm not anything close to an expert on mangroves. And, uh, however, I have studied them as a fan uh, in the wild for a number of years, and I've kept them in all sorts of aquariums for the better part of about 20 years. And in that time, I've learned a few things that have led me to be pretty successful with, you know, with them as an aquarist. Yeah, when we're talking about brackish water aquariums, we'd be completely remiss if I didn't mention the stars of this habitat, the mangrove trees. Now, in our aquarium practice, we typically focus on the most readily available specimen or species, excuse me, which is the reasonably hardy red mangrove, also known as Rhizophora mangal. It's hardly what you'd call an aquarium plant. I mean, it's a tree. <laughs> yeah, a fucking tree. So remind yourself about that, okay? Now, that being said, the mangrove's a pretty amazing tree that certainly has applications for aquariums, specifically brackish water aquariums and marine aquariums. Now, without going into a long, long recap of what mangroves are and how they function, because you can Google it, and you know we've talked about mangroves probably 20 times or 30 times over the life of this podcast and uh, and the accompanying blog, so you can look that stuff up online easily. Let's just say that mangroves are a group of trees and shrubs which live in coastal intertidal zones in areas of warm, muddy, and salty conditions that would probably kill most other plants. Mangroves possess specialized organs within their branches, their roots, and their leaves, which allow them to filter out sodium, uh, absorb atmospheric air through their bark, and generally pretty much dominate their habitats because of these and some other really remarkable adaptations to this harsh environment. Now, there's about 100 or so different species of mangroves, all of which are found between tropical and subtropical latitudes near the uh, equator, as they're utterly intolerant of cold temperatures. Now, mangroves are known for putting down these extensive prop roots into the mud and silt from which they grow, giving them the sort of appearance of walking on water. And these root tangles not only help them withstand the daily rising and falling tides, they also serve to slow the movement of the water, which allows sediments to settle out and build up the bottom contours of their local ecosystem. So they're important uh, as an environmental buttress, if you will, uh, against erosion. Oh, and before you start going off on me about, you know, their unsuitability for aquariums and ethical implications for removing them from the wild, let's just clarify a few things. Let's talk for a second about how we acquire them and how they grow. Now, first off, removing a growing mangrove tree or even a seedling from the natural environment is damaging. It's unethical, illegal in most areas, and essentially idiotic. Yes, you are a fucking idiot if you take a mangrove tree out of a natural habitat. I'm saying it right there. I'm sure you know that already, but it's worth mentioning emphatically again. Now, 
interestingly, um, the roots, which are arguably the most attractive part of the tree, are the most misunderstood one, and it's the most confused part of the in the aquarium hobby of how to take advantage of the growth and structure. Now, first of all, let me digress again back to how we get mangroves. You should be getting them as legally collected propagals, and propagals are, uh, I guess you would call them a. Um, sort of a seedling or, or, or a seed pod, if you will, but it's a propagal. It looks like a little, almost like a little uh, pickle or a very thin uh, pepper or zucchini. Um, they're unmistakable. Um, now, here's the deal. Again, what I started talking about is a lot of hobbyists are unfamiliar with how to actually employ mangroves in the aquarium and how they grow. And it, it, let's talk about this for a second. Now, I see literally dozens and dozens of social media posts, pics, and videos in which the aquarist, you know, has this uh, really, you know, attractive either marine or even a brackish aquarium, uh, and they take a propagal, perhaps even it's partially sprouted, and they just shove the damn thing into the substrate, which is usually just comprised of like fine dead aragonite sand. Now, maybe it continues to grow for a while. Maybe it doesn't. Y you don't always see the follow-up videos. You just see the initial cool shots, and everybody's like, "Oh, it's amazing." Uh, but I do hear from plenty of hobbyists who take this approach, if you can dignify it by calling that, and they complain that the propagal either rots or simply doesn't grow. Well, yeah, because it doesn't surprise me because the practice of shoving them into the sand sort of glosses over the way mangrove propagals root and sprout into seedlings in nature. So let's talk about that for, for a second. The propagal or seed pod actually germinates while still on the tree, which is kind of cool and they're ready to take root as soon as they drop off. Now this process takes about two to three years. Yeah, the seed pod is actually a couple of years old before it even drops off the tree. If you take away one thing about mangroves from this piece, it's that they do everything really slowly. If you're expecting to have a beautiful miniature tree in your aquarium in a few months, you're totally in the wrong place. When the propagals fall off the tree in nature, they can float around in the water for many weeks before they wash up on shore or find some other little terrestrial niche to sprout in. Now, some of these propagals go right to shore and do take root quickly, while many others float around in the ocean for months or even a year or more before they find a comfy spot where they can take root. Now, in the comparative buoyancy of salt water, a propagal often lies horizontally and floats really significant distances from where the tree was. When a propagal finds its way into fresher, brackish water, the seedling turns into a vertical orientation and its roots start pointing downward. It actually saturates. So here's a little pro tip. The bottom of the propagal is typically a brownish color and it'll orient itself towards the bottom as the propagal waterlogs and starts to sink vertically. So that's your tip of which side is up and which is down. <laughs> After lodging in the substrate, the propagal sends down additional little roots into the substrate and begins to sprout leaves. Now, in my opinion, the key to success with mangroves is not to shove the damn thing right into the substrate. It's better to let them float in an aquarium, a bowl, or a jar, and put down some roots naturally. You don't even need substrate at that point. Alternatively, you could anchor them in an aquarium, securing them to some object like a piece of wood or the back of the aquarium or whatever, well above the substrate and allowing them to sort of find the bottom by themselves by putting down the, the roots. I mean, you can get fancy like I did in one of my recent brackish water mangrove aquariums where I anchor them to some dried, in this case, mangrove roots. Um, and they eventually put down their own roots and touched into the deep, really rich substrate that I created for them. That's the best way to do it, in my opinion, because it gets the strongest plant and it takes advantage of their beautiful prop roots. And it works the, as it works its way into the substrate, the plant becomes stronger and healthier. Okay, well, substrates, let's talk about that a little bit. We're going to talk about it not so much from what what they are, but about expectations and what, what, what it's like to use the type of substrates you need 
when you're growing mangroves. Now, mangroves come from habitats which ecologists call mangals, and these habitats are characterized by a very rich mud-like substrate, which is basically decomposing leaves and organic material and so forth. And of course, such rich substrates are, in my humble opinion, the very best medium in which to grow mangroves in the aquarium as well. Now, when I first started playing with mangroves in brackish water aquariums, one of my must-haves was the inclusion of, you know, biosediments and muds in the substrate mix. Now, I knew since I wasn't initially planning the substrate with, you know, actually brackish tolerant aquatic plants like cryptocarine ciliata or whatever, and how I sprout my propagals by securing them above, I knew that the substrate would serve little purpose initially until the prop roots of my mangroves touched down into, into it, you know, months later after the tank was established. So all it would do would essentially enrich the overall ecosystem of the tank. Now, the term enrich is one of those deliberately vague buzzwords that I just love to play with. I mean, what the hell does it really mean? Well, I like to think that it means that it'll impart minerals and organics into the water, which would foster the growth of bacteria, beneficial microorganisms, and potentially some small crustaceans, which would help establish a little food web in my tank. That's what I think. And in my botanical style brackish water aquariums, it does just that. I've seen uh, an interesting explosion of small life forms in these tanks when I follow that practice. And the addition of mangrove leaf litter has no doubt assisted in fostering this, just like it does in our botanical style freshwater aquariums. The small, you know, life forms in the substrate region are pretty busy breaking down all the leaves and the other organic matter into sort of a compost of sorts. Now, although there's not much, you know, of this activity visible in uh, a typical aquarium, you just see the leaf litter lying there and maybe some sub, some uh, detritus or whatever, it's there. And I know I include all of Neurites snails in a lot of my brackish tanks, and I see them working that substrate, plenty, spending plenty of time grazing it, and they're... Um, fecal pellets also help enrich that substrate. So it's a, an interesting, rich substrate that you have. Now, the other um, thing that I found interesting too is because I used wood. In this case, it was mangrove, legally collected mangrove uh, branches and, and roots. And um, mangroves are really dirty wood. It, it releases a lot of material. I don't know if it's lignans and tannins and all kinds of stuff and just plain old dirt and sand and mud and stuff into the water. So you'll get a little bit of a... Uh, a cloudiness at first, which is kind of interesting. Now, it's cloudiness I want to talk about a little bit more. Let's, again, talk about what to expect when you use mangrove materials or, in this case, uh, uh, substrate that is comprised of mud and sediments and so forth. With all of the functional benefits of these kinds of materials, you'll also experience some stuff which perhaps challenges your long-held aesthetic beliefs about what a successful aquarium looks like. Again, the water may not always be crystal clear in your brackish aquarium that uses mud, whether it's tinted or not. In the same manner in which leaves and botanicals get covered in biofilms and break down in our freshwater aquarium, dirty wood and rich muddy substrates can do their own sort of editing in your tanks uh, uh, to the tank's aesthetic. Now, I focused on the substrate in, in this because that's usually the cause of this cloudiness or turbidity in a brackish water aquarium, that, the way we play with it. Now, I use a mix of several materials in my substrates. It's a mix you'll definitely be interested in if you're, in if you're growing mangroves. Uh, but a substrate which, if disturbed, is almost certainly a recipe for some cloudy water. And that's exactly what I experienced in a lot of my mudded, you know, brackish water aquariums, at least for a little bit initially. And I realized also that my inclusion of external electronic pumps, I use Vortec MP10s, uh, you know, they provide amazing, intelligent water movement at every level of the tank. And I know, know that that will typically disturb some layers of the substrate. It's just what happens. And you combine that with the activities of some of the bottom-to-line fishes I keep, like 
bumblebee gobies and the slowly you know the slow excavation that occurs on the surface with the snails uh, and it's certainly a recipe for some turbidity or cloudiness if you will so it's something that you need to expect it's something i always knew would be an issue for a lot of people going into these setups i mean i'm not completely positive that you'll always experience cloudiness for periods of time but you might and quite frankly I was never 100% certain how long it would last or if it would ever go away. And guess what? It does. There's a, but there's, you know, in these types of substrates, you're usually having a big supply of sediments that could potentially cloud the water over time. And as a longtime reefer, I always thought about crystal clarity of water as being a sort of a measure of overall water quality, which of course isn't really a complete story. You can have turbidity and high water quality, right? Depends what's causing it. When I began playing with mud in my mangrove tanks, I needed to see what was causing some of that initial cloudiness and what the impact on the water quality uh, was. And I, you know, what did I do? I ran the usual tests that everybody does. First, I did the sniff test and it never smelled like hydrogen sulfide or anything nasty. So that was good. No smell. And then what I did is I started playing with basic water tests, you know, pH, nitrite, ammonia, then nitrate, then phosphates and all that stuff. And the results were almost always no nitrite, no ammonia, virtually undetectable nitrate and minimal phosphate. And the latter two, nitrate and phosphate, are generally agreed to be a sort of biological yardstick of aquarium water quality. So it made sense to check those. And I kind of figured that was the case. I wouldn't see a lot of negative uh, impact on the water chemistry from this, you know, mud and cloudiness. I, and I realized it was a direct result of this cloudiness of including these very fine sediments and muds in my substrate mix. Now, you can look at these as potential negatives, you know, turbidity. I mean, that looks kind of shitty to a lot of people. And you can think it's a huge problem. Or you can embrace it, much like we do in our Blackwater Botanical-style aquariums, with their look as part of the functional aesthetics of a rich, active substrate in a dynamically evolving aquarium. These episodes do seem to wax and wane over time. Sometimes they'll be cloudy. Most of the time, it's not. You can even cap your substrate with a little bit of, you know, um, aragonite sand if you want. But the point is, when you're using a substrate, a rich substrate with mangroves, you're going to have to expect some different aesthetics from time to time. And if you look at the surface level and the underwater photos of mangrove habitats in nature, you'll see this similar sort of haziness. It's a, it's a little bit of a, a cloudiness as well. It's not unusual. And... Not all of these environments feature this cloudiness, although most do. And the aquarium, I realize, is a you know closed system without the benefit of millions of liters of water for dissolution. But the analog is <clears throat> clear to me. It, it, this is what happens in nature. It's also what happens in our aquariums. And, and curiously, I've noticed that these kinds of phenomenon um, always happen when you're using fine sedimented substrates. We've talked about this many, many times before. And often the cloudiness dissipates over time. It probably sediments. It could be a bloom of microorganisms which are flourishing in the water as a result of all this organic material from this mix. But, you know, a microassay or some other focused study would be, you know, the ultimate way to find out. But bottom line is I think that the critical part of this equation is how we think about this stuff and accept it into the big picture of management and the, and the operational lifetimes of our aquarium systems and just how we react. This leads to, um, you guess correctly, if you're going to say it, leads to another mental shift in your aquarium work. That's what it led to in mine. In my situation, the options I had were pretty straightforward when I found out about this cloudiness stuff. I could flat out dismantle my aquarium and reset it without mud, which was totally unacceptable. Or I could keep the system running and continue to do regular water changes, utilize micron filter socks, chemical filtration media, just do what I do, doing nothing different to address the issue. You know, consistency, patience, and acceptance. And that's exactly what I did. It's exactly what I do with all my aquariums. I keep going. 
I keep doing what I'm doing. And interestingly, the cloudiness that you experience initially with substrates like this, it, it subsides after like a week or more. And kind of like I thought it would. Occasionally it'll come back because again, fish just dig and you're dealing with mud. But this big knock about, oh, using muds and you know sediments and aquariums is dangerous. And it's only dangerous if you're an incompetent aquarist, in my opinion. And it's always worked out well in every mangrove tank I've played with. Fresh, brackish, marine, whatever. Go figure. And as we've been telling you for years, mangrove ecosystems are dynamic, highly complex, not well understood habitats, quite honestly. Mangrove forests have been described as detritus-based ecosystems, which is something I find compelling and exciting as a botanical-style aquarium enthusiast. And this has had a profound impact on the utilization of mangroves in my natural aquariums. It's had a profound impact on the way I think about it. Our representation of them in the aquarium, while certainly more limited than nature in terms of function, can still provide a very interesting, even productive habitat for a variety of fishes and other organisms with unique benefits seldom embraced in the hobby. So if you're fascinated by these amazing adaptable trees, and yes, they are trees, if you can attain them legally and responsibly and are up for the challenge of keeping them over the long haul, mangroves are an absolutely fascinating and attractive addition to your specialized aquarium. In fact, you should create an aquarium around them. Now, we're going to do our best to continue to talk about mangroves in coming months, as we've done for the last several years, because I just think there's something there with our expanded botanical view of the Brackish Water Aquarium. I think there's a lot we can learn and a lot of skills we can transfer, both from our, our botanical-style aquarium keeping experience and for those of us that also keep reef aquariums. There's a lot of crossover potential. Keeping mangroves in the aquarium is about husbandry and perspective as much as it is about anything else. And accepting the fact that the mangroves, the leaves which they drop, and the mud that they thrive in are all part of the ecology of both nature and of the aquarium. And that they'll behave as all terrestrial materials do when submerged. These things will start breaking down. They'll create biofilms, fungal growth, and occasionally cloudiness. And that's what we know. That's what we're good at understanding. Don't, just, just because you're working in a different medium, don't, get, don't be afraid. Don't worry about this. You've got this. Stay focused. Stay curious, stay diligent, stay observant, stay patient, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Thelman from Tannin Aquatics with a few thoughts on sedimentation and cloudy water. I hope you enjoyed them. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for uh, being part of our world. And I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.